Episode 4 Reflections on Love Last time I promised a break from family matters, especially the war between fathers and sons. So, in keeping my word, I want to take time out from our story to allow a little space for, well, reflection, speculation, thinking time, if you will. For those of you who can't wait to find out what happens next, you have my blessing to skip this episode and move on to the next. But for those of you who, like me, spend more time than is absolutely healthy, thinking, analysing, wondering about life and love, please stay a while. Because I've been ruminating on the beautiful green genie and the whole business of love at first sight. And because the thoughts are just that, thoughts going on in my head only, there's really no soundtrack to give you a sense of place. Though some have proposed the echo of an empty space might be appropriate. I wondered briefly if the dawn chorus might do. I got up very early with my recorder. No, I don't think so either. Instead, I want to pay tribute to the unsung heroes of music who offer up their talent for producers like me to use without expecting to be paid. People like Wes Hutchinson, who has provided the theme to this series, and Akash Gandhi, whose compositions work beautifully as incidental breaks. Thank you to them all. You can connect with these guys via the website. May the mainstream music industry learn from their example and streamline their labyrinthine licensing to the benefit of us all. So, here's a touch of Akash Gandhi to get us going. I've been thinking about Jeannie's photo. You remember Jeannie, Green Jeannie, the woman who stole my heart one evening in France and whose image lingers still as an ideal, platonic and powerful, a year later. I've been thinking especially about the notion of recognition. If you see a photograph of a tiger, or a kettle, or a banana, and I'm drawing no comparisons with Jeannie here, you surely must have some sense of what a tiger is, what a kettle does, and what the curvy yellow thing is, whether you can ride, wear, or be eaten by any of the same. There has to be recognition for there to be love at first sight, don't you think? In other words, there must be a series of associations implicit in the object of your desire, if only at the most basic level of recognising the species, the sex, the type and the individual characteristics suggested by the image, or indeed the reality, of the loved one. So I wonder, what are the associations suggested or embodied in that one image of Jeannie? And how particular are they to me? Neither my daughter nor my best friend felt as I did, though each subsequently found superficial similarities with my ex-wife and ex-girlfriend, respectively. I think only to explain my bizarre behaviour. But when I saw Jeannie's photograph, I saw someone I felt I knew, even though I'd never seen her before. Maybe we should take a moment to consider if the phenomenon of love at first sight exists at all. There is little in the way of hard evidence, and the question has thus been in dispute, no doubt since love itself was first invented, presumably a very long time ago. 
but a quick online trawl delivers a certain Dr. Earl Nauman, author of the appropriately named Love at First Sight. He surveyed 1,500 individuals of every race, religion and background in America, concluding that love at first sight is far from being a rare experience. What's more, Dr. Nauman theorizes that if you believe in love at first sight, there's a roughly 60% chance it will happen to you. His survey revealed that nearly two-thirds of the US population believes in love at first sight. Of the believers, more than half have experienced it. 55% of those who experienced love at first sight married the object of their affections. And best of all, three quarters of those married couples stayed married. Assuming one believes, it seems that love at first sight is rather like spotting aliens or believing in God. Not that those two things should be put in the same basket, naturally. Relying heavily on an act of faith to come true remarkably convincing when it does, and more often than not, long-lasting. The British apparently mirror Americans. Cosmopolitan magazine, from December 2012, reports a survey that found 72% of otherwise sensible Britons believe in love at first sight, an almost identical proportion with America. Of course, there's a counter-argument against love at first sight. A pernicious rumour that takes away all the romance and recasts the experience as pure physical attraction. I call this rumour pernicious because it's a tough one to contradict, given that love and sexual attraction often go hand in hand, so to speak, and because it reduces my own experience to something biological, if not mechanical. All I can say to draw a line is that my reaction to Jeannie was not lust at first sight. I can't deny an element of physical attraction. The loose long hair, straight shoulders, shy smile, elegant fingers. All qualities I respond to generally in women. But these qualities are common and hardly exclusive to genie. And when I do find some of them, or even all of them, combined in one individual, they seldom result in feelings akin to love. Having said that, I should acknowledge that previous loves share some characteristics with genie. Some, but not all. My ex-wife, for instance, very similar build, though curly-haired and with quite different features. And come to think of it as the girlfriend who came to visit me in France, the one whose son I displaced, she had, still has, I'm sure, the loose hair and the shy smile, for sure. And while my first love, my first girlfriend, we spent 10 years together from the age of 17 to 27, wore very similar cardigans, the similarity ends there. Those are the three long-term relationships of my life to date, though I'm still hoping there's time for just one more. Other shorter-term partners bear little relation to Jeannie except in rather general and obvious ways, being both women and human. I might actually go further in refuting this pernicious rumour. Is there really any necessary connection at all between love and lust? Many of us, if pressed, would confess to feelings of lust for members of the opposite sex or the same sex, unlikely to make suitable partners for life. Lust is therefore not a precise indication of the potential to love. Love can blossom and grow without lust being involved, before lust is involved, and even more tellingly, when lust is largely a thing of the past. Couples continue to love 
just as passionately and with great commitment, even without sex. Think for a moment about carers. There are 6.5 million carers in the UK, one in eight adults, a figure estimated to rise to 9 million in 20 years' time. Around a quarter of all those take care of their life partner. Many of those being cared for will have conditions, including dementia, that preclude or inhibit physical love to such a degree as to make it a thing of the past. And yet the care goes on, as does the love, even when the odds are stacked as high as they could be in terms of lust. Okay, recognition. A quick definition to make sure we're figuratively speaking on the same page. Recognition, a noun. The action of recognizing or being recognized. Synonyms, identification, recollection, recall, remembrance. Now those synonyms are useful. I've already acknowledged that Jeannie shares characteristics as women I've found attractive in the past. And Jeannie's dress sense, and pose and situation on the beach all send signals of her values that I might identify with. She's not wearing heels or makeup, she's in the fresh air even on a cloudy day. She's relaxed if shy. I'm clearly responding to these as positives. Elements I can begin to construct a whole personality and outlook from. But given there's clearly a very personal component, is that all there is? Perhaps our great philosophers and psychologists have something to teach us. Am I, are we, carrying around a platonic ideal in our heads and hearts? A perfect genie who guides our journey from pure idea to real-world search for the living embodiment. Freud, I'm sure, would have a field day. But then who cares what Freud thinks? Alternatively, Herr Jung might have us believe we're responding to archetypes of the collective unconscious. Or maybe there's not so much weight attached and we're simply recognising familiar contemporary cultural signifiers, the sources forgotten or obscured by our scattergun brains. After all, every place you look, from magazines to galleries, there are images that suggest ideal forms of both men and women we can use to measure ourselves and others against, often incidentally finding ourselves wanting. For instance, and I claim no specialist knowledge of art, so please don't take my word for any of this. Jeannie's pose, the averted eyes, the lowered head in particular, are beyond familiar. Check out Botticelli's Birth of Venus, for example. And there are dozens of other representations with similar iconography. Mostly, it has to be said, from the more distant past, when ideals of chastity and humility were prized in, or more accurately, foisted on women. But stop a moment. I'm casting this investigation as aesthetics and artistic tropes derived from religion. This is, after all, the 21st century, and it is beholden upon me as a partially reconstructed male to concede the demure, eyes-averted pose is an outmoded male fantasy, a kind of wires paradise tied up with notions of sexism and horrid objectification. Boys watching girls, as Andy Williams so memorably put it to music. OK, what's interesting is that Jeannie chose the photograph as her principal profile image. Even if the pose itself was unconscious and accidental and carried connotations she did not intend or want, it would make sense for Jeannie, as for any of us, to post a picture that references cultural ideals, whether consciously or not, particularly in the context of internet dating. Men like me, and I'm sure many others, will stop and pay attention because we're getting all the right signals. Alternatively, 
Her reasons for choosing the photo may have been altogether simpler and more personal. In her other photographs, Jeannie is generally older. She is more active and pictured against a more exotic landscape. The beach photograph is a younger Jeannie. Perhaps the self she sees in the photograph reminds her of a time and a place she feels a special attachment to or longs for. If so, Jeannie's decision to choose that particular photograph becomes an act of personal nostalgia, only coincidentally calling on the iconic. In this analysis, Jeannie is having a conversation with Jeannie, and I'm having a conversation with myself that touches on the same references, but results from entirely different realities and ultimately in entirely separate meanings. Meanings that are deeply personal and very possibly contradictory. I just happened to overhear what Jeannie was saying to herself as I skimmed the pages of a Lonely Hearts Club and just happened to resonate with her thoughts in rather dramatic fashion. Whatever. All I'm sure about is that Jeannie's photograph and Bob Willoughby's image of Audrey Hepburn are virtually indistinguishable. Now you'll have to take my word for it with Jeannie's photo to protect her privacy, but believe me the fit is very close. Meanwhile, whilst the similarity between Jeannie and Audrey may be mere coincidence, it matters to me because Audrey Hepburn looks like my mum. You might be interested to know that in the course of writing this, I finally decided to ask Jeannie about that photo. How, you may wonder, if she had no subscription to the dating website? Aha, another story altogether. But one that is considerably less important here than the remarkable fact that she very graciously responded. I don't mind revealing my thought process to you. Although I was happy at the time this photo was taken, my selection of it was not an act of personal nostalgia. Neither the day nor my companion were particularly special to me. I didn't think for a moment that the photo would catch people's eye. To the contrary, I thought that in all probability, it would result in most men swiping past my profile, which was all to the good. I'm not materialistic, I appreciate the simple things in life. I value character over position and property, and I'd rather be single than in a relationship with someone I couldn't connect with, on an emotional, spiritual, not in the religious or hippie sense. My hope was that this might in some way be conveyed in the image that I'd selected. I had concluded that anyone who objected to my careless attire was unlikely to share many, if any, of my passions. Hence, by choosing it as my profile picture, I could separate the subjective wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Also, I hate having my picture taken. As a child, I was frequently forced to stand for hours while my father took photographs of one backdrop or another. My mother, sister and I were compelled to make up the foreground. For me, there is a direct correlation between having my picture taken and abject misery. Therefore, I go out of my way to avoid cameras. Subsequently, the pool of photographs I have to choose from is very small. And to make matters worse, of the photos that do exist, 90% are truly hideous. Honestly, I'm not exaggerating. These photos would frighten small children and make them cry. Given my aversion to cameras, it's perhaps ironic that the photo is taken by an ex who was a keen amateur photographer. However, in contrast to my father, 
He liked to take untainted photos of landscapes and wildlife, and he knew better than to request that I pose for him. So, with him at least, the camera became invisible, and I neither noticed nor minded when he took a quick snap of me. I hope I've not spoiled your imaginings with the tedious truth. Subscribe to download the series. Just go to the website, metoomama.com. You'll also find photographs of people and places, together with footnotes, reflections on love, suggestions on care, and the chance to share your own stories and experiences. Thanks for listening.